Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Oh God, What Now? The world's most appropriately named podcast. I'm Dorian Linsky, uh, author of The Ministry of Truth, the biography of George Orwell's 1984, which I will say just this once is now out in paperback in case you want to find out what Orwellian actually means. <laughs> Let's meet our guests. Ian Dunt is editor at large of politics.co.uk and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hello, Ian. Hello, mate. So Keir Starmer uh, told Andrew Marr that Labour wouldn't renegotiate the deal in government or try and reinstate the freedom of movement, which obviously enraged a lot of Remainers. Uh, why make that promise now? Did he, was, was it just sort of the only thing that you can say at this stage? Or could you say well, something else? I mean, you know, he, could, he, could, he could say other things. I mean, the thing is, he's engaged in what are the Tory attacks and how do I neutralise them before they have a chance to make them? So on that basis, he's going to rule out freedom of movement, because if not, you can, I mean, you know, I don't need to line out exactly how that attack is going to go. And the same with renegotiating the deal, because even though the, the, the electoral timetable and the sort of first staging post of the deal in order to sort of look at it again, do align, what he doesn't want is basically Boris Johnson being able to say in 2024, he just wants to talk about Brexit all over again. And I think it, that will be quite a powerful message to the electorate because no one is going to want to go back to talking about that fucking issue all over again. So we can see it coming and he's stopping it. And we did, I've got to say, you know, on freedom of movement, I mean, during the leadership bid, he did actually say, I, I want to continue freedom of movement. So he, he, you could, it's fair enough to hold him up on that shit. On the rest of it, I, 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 it was always the case you kind of had to make, he couldn't go into the next election still talking about Brexit and specifically not talking about it from any kind of Romanian perspective. We knew that. We knew that the question is, you know, this is a guy that's on side, you get him into power and you hope that in 10 years, he might be able to start undoing some of this damage. Expecting it now is a, is a bit too much. And it doesn't look like he has any intention of doing it for the next four years. But I mean, I, d- I did wonder this week, uh, that we're seeing sort of Brexit begin to bite. You know, there's there's food rotting at the borders, car prices are going up. Um, some companies, you know, small businesses, find that they're currently unable to ship to the EU or people, oh, there's just extraordinarily high postage costs all of a sudden. So it does seem like now that we're finally here, people are noticing things that make them rather unhappy. And, you know, it's like the eclipse of, uh, of, of sort of rather gung-ho leave voting fishermen now going, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't what I was promised. Um, so when you say, okay, well, Brexit's a dead issue and you can't keep talking about it and, and all that lot, I mean, what will these things have no effect to sort of just a gathering list of things that are going wrong due to Brexit? Well, I mean, we should premise it, right, with you could be in a situation in two years where really things are going so badly that people really do want to keep on talking about it very, very aggressively and very, very upfront in our political debate. I think it's more likely that it'll just be simmering away in the background. Most of the damage that Brexit does, I mean, there's some immediate uh, sort of stuff, and most of the damage is actually quite hidden away. It's about, you know, moving parts of your business, for instance. So it's hidden away in the supply chain. Ultimately, I don't think this is about him thinking he's not going to make any changes to the deal um, as he goes in. It's him saying, I'm not going to go for an overhaul of the deal. I do think that Labour's going to want to tinker. And I do think that in the manifesto, they will say, you know, we're going to do some tinkering, you know, even if it's just Erasmus, but I think probably much more sort of substantial than that, even if it was just sort of, you know, musicians' ability to tour around Europe, they will want to do some tinkering. I just think it's ultimately about him saying, I don't want to put this front and centre. And insofar as I discuss it, I want it to be on my terms rather than as a response to an obvious incoming Tory attack. Meanwhile, the COVID crisis is reaching what Chris Whitty warns will be its worst weeks. And friend of the podcast, Christina Pagel uh, from Independent Sage, has been writing about what it looks like when the NHS is overwhelmed. Um, what was your impression from reading her piece? I mean, you know, it's the horror. The stuff that she was writing about is this 
kind of there's the stages of it right i mean some stages are already happening and we won't know the consequences until later and that's sort of cancelled checkups obviously you're going to cancel those things we don't know how many people will eventually die or eventually get conditions because of the checkups that were cancelled during this period and that's obviously at the very lightest end the more severe is you know doctors and nurses going through unimaginable trauma because they're basically looking after several icu patients when they would usually be one-on-one and one-on-two making mistakes that have consequences because naturally you will in that in that circumstance of ambulances queuing up outside of hospitals because there's no beds to use of cancelled surgeries and at the top end of things of rationing um, and basically rationing care of doctors being able to being forced to make these impossible moral decisions now in some cases so there's some areas heading into that kind of situation and some of them these things are already starting to happen around us right now and I think what's weird about it is we're all just stuck at home, you know? So it's this sort of silent horror that's going on that we can't see it. And the NHS is quite secretive about this stuff. The doors are mostly shut to film crews. They're not talking about it. It's not in the government's interest to highlight it. So all, all we get is that kind of daily death toll, this sort of bureaucratic tolling of the... It's a really quite unsettling experience to have all of this, as you know, going on around you but not to have the sort of, not to really experience it, for it just to be happening silently somewhere else. So, yeah, I mean, I would recommend anyone read that article and recognise what people are going through and what medical staff are going through, and therefore just how appalling it is when you have certain sort of shock jocks coming out, acting as if none of this is even fucking happening. Yasmin Sahan is a staff writer at The Atlantic, recently specialising in populism and nationalism in the US. Uh, So lots to keep her busy. Hello, Yasmin. (laughs) Hello. Uh, We'll be coming to that later. Um, But last spring, you wrote about how quickly the UK government was able to house homeless people. I think that was one of the things that got a lot of praise for then. Now the pandemic and the weather are far worse and they're doing nothing about it, while other emergency measures from last spring, such as protecting renters from eviction, have also been dropped. Um, Why, apart from presumably just saving money? Yeah, I, I... The honest answer is I don't really know. I think the one the one bright side is that I think with regard to renters protection that that's been extended until the end of next month. But even that is something that I, I think as from what I've seen, um, uh, housing campaigners and, and charities have said that, you know, more needs to be done. But I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Last or the last, the first lockdown was um, what we saw was a really Herculean effort to make sure that stay at home was a message that could really be applied to everyone. Um, And this time around, we're not only dealing with a more transmissible variant of this virus, but it's also deep winter. It's really cold outside. And and many of the resources that I think unhoused people would have had access to in previous such winters, such as, you know, homeless shelters, you know, those things aren't safe right now. There's no social distancing in an environment like that. So, yeah, I mean, as I think what the government has said, and which is true, is that they have provided local councils with funding to support rough sleepers. Um, However, from what I've seen, homeless charities are saying that that kind of support isn't as wide ranging as it was during the first lockdown. So there there are barriers to support for some people um, that that didn't exist before. And, you know, as Ian just outlined, we're in a situation that's the worst we've seen. So um, it, it really is distressing to know that there could be people sitting out on the streets right now uh, with nowhere to go, nowhere to stay home, um, and, and nothing's being done about it. And uh, the government's PR disaster of the week have been pictures of shabby food parcels for children, or hampers, as the caterer optimistically brands them. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's lots to say here, obviously, that you should not 
be halving onions and peppers and so on, and that people can't just live on, on beans and tuna. Why does the government not simply give families money to buy their own better food if you're going to spend £30? It's the party of personal responsibility, so why mm. not just let people make their own choices? Exactly, yeah. This would be, I think I saw a, a tweet on this that I thought was quite good, and I'm totally blanking on who did it, so if, if, if this person happens to be listening to this, I apologize. But basically that, yeah, giving money or vouchers, which I believe the government is going to resume doing um, if if my news is up to date, that sort of solution, giving vouchers to families, for example, which I believe the government said that they're going to resume doing, that's what they did during the first lockdown. It, it makes sense for a number of reasons. I mean, there was, there was a study by um, Oxford University that found that, you know, when looking across countries, there's strong evidence that money, not food, is the most efficient and effective way to distribute emergency aid. I mean, you know, cash is far cheaper to distribute than food parcels or hampers, as they're sometimes called. And But more fundamentally, I think, you know, the fact of the matter is that parents should have some agency when it comes to picking their children's meals. I mean, they know what they like, they know mm. what they dislike, um, you know, and, and they can clearly, I think, do a lot more with 30 pounds than a government hired contractor can. I suppose this is another example of kind of U-turn caused by a combination of Twitter outrage and Marcus Rashford, the mm. most effective uh, policy making combination <laughs> in Britain. <laughs> Our guest this week is Philip Stevens, award-winning journalist, chief political commentator for the Financial Times, and author of a new book, Britain Alone, The Path from Suez to Brexit. Hello, Philip. Welcome. Hi. So you've got some very nice, very nice blurbs. Uh, David Kynaston has called your book the fullest long-run political and diplomatic narrative yet of Britain's fateful tragicomic road to Brexit. Peter Hennessy's called it an instant classic. Uh, but spoiling the party is the Brexit historian Robert Toombs, who called you an ultra-remainer in the Times. Uh, now we have some ultra Remainer mugs left over from the Romaniacs days. So is this is this true? <laughs> if it means that um, I'm a, uh, I regard myself as a European, yes, absolutely true. If it means that I think that leaving the EU was a really, really stupid act of self harm, it's absolutely true. I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> oh, good. But, yeah, but to Rob, hear it. Robert Toombs though did say, and I think I was going to maybe I just want to cut this out and use it and, and put it up on Twitter how well written it was. <laughs> so um, I thought I might take a couple of his sentences and put them out on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> as a puff for the book. They're always the best. Uh, they're the best quotes though. The ones with lots of suspicious ellipses, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did Britain ever? really sort of want to be alone or was it more that it was deluded about the special relationship and thought that it would always be safe with america uh, in or out of europe well i think there've been there've been three stages of grief in 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 this the first is uh, we won the war but we had, didn't realize that we'd um, bankrupted ourselves and that the us and the soviet union had really taken our place as the sort of the great powers so we imagined for about a decade that we would still we were still one of the Churchill used to call it the big three. We were we were one of the big players, and then we had we tried to uh, kick the Egyptians uh, off, off the Suez Canal, and uh, to our horror, dis discovered that we couldn't, and the Americans pulled us back. So that was the end of phase one. Then phase two was okay. We'll get in with the Americans. Macmillan said, "Well, you know, we'll be we'll be greased to America's." Rome will be the smart guys who whisper in their ears and promote ourselves with the Americans. And that worked for a bit. But then we discovered that actually Europe was being quite successful. And this 
thing called the common market that the French and the Germans had set up was doing rather well, and that French trains and German engineers and business in general were doing well. So we thought we better join that. And so we joined because we felt we had to. We didn't join with any great enthusiasm. But I would say that for 40-odd years, despite all the trauma and the psychodrama, we made a not a bad fist out of this balancing act with the Americans on one side and the Europeans on the other, and we could leverage our influence in Washington when we were doing business in in Europe, and we could leverage our influence in Europe when we're doing business in Washington. So I think we did quite well, but there is has been this strand of opinion that says, for reasons I've never quite understood, that if you want to be global, you can't be European as well. Uh, the Germans sell more than anyone else, all the rest of us put together to China, but they also regard themselves as good Europeans. But somehow there's been this division. It's there in the 1950s with people like Anthony Eden. You know, we're a global nation, not a European nation. We've never really accepted this identity as being European. One of the reasons, I think, is that we were never invaded and never defeated. And we see ourselves, you see a bit of this skepticism in Sweden as well, another northern European nation that sort of stayed stayed out of the war in that respect so but um we are now i'm afraid back you know there's this famous infamous quote from uh, uh dean acheson back in 1962 that we're a nation that lost an empire and looking for a role and we sort of found that role as i say in the balancing act between the atlantic and and the channel and now we're back exactly to where he said in 1962, we've got something called Global Britain. Do you know anyone who knows what <laughs> Global Britain is? Do you think Boris Johnson knows what Global Britain is? I mean, Boris Johnson thinks that we, I think he thinks we're going to go back to some great Elizabethan age. And we're going to be, you know, the Navy is going to be sort of setting sail for all, for all the seas. And we're going to be, you know, sort of, I know there's going to be, Francis Drake reappearing on the bow and will conquer all before us. But we know what Boris Johnson sort of understands. Well, later in the podcast, we'll be talking with Philip about Britain's various foreign policy obsessions and how they got us to where we are now. Plus the latest on the efforts to remove Donald Trump from the White House before he does any more damage and your questions in but your emails. And in the special extended version of the podcast, exclusive to Patreon backers, we'll be talking about the rights and wrongs of kicking extremists, including extremist presidents, off social networks. If you'd like to hear that conversation and get the podcast early without ads, plus merchandise and special perks too, then join us on Patreon. So it's Patreon, oh God, what now, podcast. So there's one story this week that continues to be even bigger than COVID, the reaction to the storming of the Capitol last Wednesday. Yes, I mean, Republicans have been trying to sort of minimise uh, what happened and Trump's role in it. Uh, but now that even organisations as unwoke as Deutsche Bank and the Professional Golfers Association are cutting ties with him, I mean, has, hasn't Rubicon finally been crossed and that actually Republicans are struggling to uh, accept how much has changed? 
before I get onto that, I've heard that the Professional Golfers Association, the PGA Cup, actually like really upset him, possibly more so than everything <laughs> else that's happening. Um, but, uh, which is which kind of tells you everything you really need to know about the president. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think certainly without question, January sixth was a turning point, um, not just for Donald Trump and and those who have allied themselves um, to him for for the last four years, but but for the country. You know, I think for years now we've dealt with a president who has largely led with impunity and he's never really taken responsibility for anything that happens on his watch. Um, and indeed, he doesn't even seem to really want to take responsibility for the things that he said and did that ultimately led um, his supporters to storm the Capitol um, in what was a deadly, if, if fruitless, effort to subvert American democracy. I mean, you know, it, it has been... It, not, if not surprising, then at least perhaps in some parts encouraging to see a lot of Republicans distance themselves from the president. Not exactly the biggest show of courage, given that there are two weeks left of, of him being on the job. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of, you know, the folks who have resigned from his cabinet over what's happened. Um, but, you know, by the same token, you've seen folks like Mike Pompeo, who, I mean, at least as far as I've seen so far, has remained pretty quiet um, in the last week. So, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is a Republican Party that's really trying to figure out how it's going to handle this. You know, parting with Trump means parting with a massive support base, but sticking with him also means alienating, you know, a significant chunk of the country, thankfully, that saw what happened last week as entirely reprehensible. And since 2016, there's been this sort of endless debate um, amongst the pundits, historians and so on about whether Trump is a populist and authoritarian or even a fascist. Have last week's events altered the consensus? Um, you know, I, certainly Trump's populist credentials, I don't think we're ever in doubt. I mean, he ticks all those populist boxes like, you know, he, he pits the so-called real people against corrupt elites. He undermines democratic institutions. He attacks uh, the media. Um, he frames any threat to his power as illegitimate. Um, I think what what last week did um, was reaffirm for us, or at least for me, and you know, I I try to be really careful when I think about these terms because um, you know I I wrote a piece about this with regard to populism, but I, I know that you know often just throwing about these terms without defining them um, can often just render them meaningless if if we just kind of take them to mean that which we do not like. But but I think what last week's events kind of proved is that Trump is, is a failed autocrat and a failed fascist. I mean, this is a man that clearly has no respect for democratic institutions. He doesn't care about having a democratic mandate. And, you know, he's willing to pursue power at all costs, even if it means pressuring his own vice president to overturn the election results and, and indeed stoking events that, that turned violent. But, you know, at the end of the day, American institutions did not enable him to do so. You know, his subordinates didn't acquiesce to his every demand. Um, so, you know, January 6th wasn't the march on Rome. Unlike Mussolini, Trump has not clung to power. But but I think we do know what kind of outcome Trump would have wanted. Um, and we know just how close it came to being a whole lot worse than it was. Um, there's a great piece on The Atlantic uh, by my colleague Elaine Godfrey, who was reporting at the Capitol that day. She talked about, you know, how some of the, the Trump supporters who who had gone to the Capitol had brought zip ties, um, were wearing like sort of like military type like vests. Rioters were erecting wooden gallows next to the Capitol, uh, talking about wanting to hang people. You know, thankfully, I mean, it was, the, I don't want to, the fact of the matter is, you know, five people died in that event, but we could easily imagine what would have happened if some of these people had managed to get themselves in a room with congressional lawmakers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite scary. 
Ian, there's been a kind of a school of punditry that has consistently downplayed um, Trump's authoritarian tendencies uh, and, and sort of complained of Trump derangement syndrome, people getting carried away. Mm. Do you think he gets too much credit for being sort of lazy and undisciplined and, and inept? I mean, should we, I think, yes, we were suggesting, judge him according to what he would clearly like to happen rather than what he actually achieves? And, and, and we really need to take seriously what he would do if he was capable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, this, this is what it, this is what it is that makes him a fascist. You know, it doesn't matter that he is too inarticulate and dim-witted to understand what those words are. And it doesn't matter that he's too incompetent to deliver upon the things that he wants to do. It doesn't change what he fundamentally is and what his instincts are. You know, it's like, do you, you know, there's that old um, Hulbeck book, Atomize, which was about the sort of, this like sexual libertine guy who really wants free love and group sex everywhere. But the thing is, he can't find anyone to sleep with him. Well, that's basically what Trump is to fascism. You know, he just is unable to deliver the thing that he actually believes in. And that, by the way, was baked in early on because his, and it goes to the heart of why there is some distinction between him and, and Brexit, right? Because the, the idea of the narrative of the people as this sort of legitimate kind of virtuous group that should be considered a collective identity that takes precedence over democratic institutions and democratic processes and the individual votes. Now, that was common to both. The distinction was that Trump dealt very explicitly and also implicitly a lot of the time with the concept of race. And it also was operationalized. I mean, that notion, by the way, that notion of race leadership is central to fascist thought. And he did pursue that idea. When he looked at the functioning of the state, he racialized the manner in which the state functioned. He did it from before he came into power when he used to complain about the ethnicity of a judge, basically saying that the judiciary should function according to racial categories. He did the same with the Muslim ban, and he did it on that day. Because if you compare the way in which he treated Black Lives Matter's protests to the way in which that protest was treated, what you are seeing there is the racialization of the state, which is a core component of how fascism operates. So even, you know, we say he was too incompetent to deliver, and he predominantly was, but in many areas, he really did start to deliver on that agenda, and it was a fascist agenda from the start, and it remained that way right until the bitter end. Philip, do you think that this event, which has already been kind of seized upon by, um, yeah, with glee by, by certain foreign leaders, is going to permanently sort of diminish uh, America's ability to sort of preach about democracy to try and sort of spread democracy elsewhere? Is this a kind of a real defining moment of decline for America? I mean, as Europeans, we tend to take two views of Americans, at least in foreign policy, which is, you know, on the one hand, they're doing too much. And then, you know, they're just, they're, they're charging around, starting wars, trying to boss everyone around. And then the Americans go away for a bit. And we're saying, well, hang on, where's American leadership? <laughs> why, isn't American, why isn't the U.S. sorting out this problem? Well, what's happening, I think, is the U.S., and this started with, you know, before Trump, to be fair, it started with Obama. Trump turbocharged it. America is pulling back from all these international responsibilities. Uh, Biden has said he'll begin to reverse that. But I think, you know, I'd put the emphasis on begin to because Biden is going to have to be a domestic policy president if he's going to hold together the Democratic coalition and also uh, 
give the Democrats a chance of winning a second term, whether it's him or someone else. So I think America has tired of the world policeman, the global leadership mantle. And I think it's also tired of, I mean, I think Biden will speak strongly on issues like human rights and things. But it's if you read the sort of papers that his policy, I was reading something that uh, uh, one of his policy advisors had written um, in Foreign Affairs. You know, they're talking about a much, much more judicious foreign policy, a policy where America tries to pull together allies, but doesn't try to sort of set the terms of debate around the world on everything. Mm. Yasmin, the Republicans, I mean, what we've seen is the Republicans obviously sort of enable Trump every step of the way. They want to keep on to his base. But now that his base appears so crazy, essentially, um, <laughs> It, it, see, it seems that it might be rather problematic uh, to hold on to, to, to sort of hold on to them. It's only going to get worse. I mean, how much of a debate within the party is there, you know, an argument for a clean break that actually you, you cannot go on like this and you cannot keep riding the tiger? I think there are certain folks within the Republican Party, and certainly Mitch McConnell may indeed be among them, who think that this is their opportunity and this is their chance to really just turn the page on this chapter of the party and kind of move forward. But but indeed, there are folks who recognize that, you know, a big chunk of their support comes from this Trump base that is quite loyal to the president. So, so I think that there is that debate happening. The Republican Party kind of has to decide if they're willing to effectively stand up to that base and redefine what the Republican Party is, or if they're just going to be, you know, the Trump party without necessarily Trump at the helm. One of Biden's big dilemmas, uh, even I think before impeachment uh, came up as an option, was whether to punish the criminality of the Trump administration or to move on. Now, mm. we, we saw that quite a lot of damage was done by Obama's refusal to hold bankers accountable in, in, for the 2008 financial crisis. Can Biden do something, you know, to show that basically there are things that you, should, you can't get away with and you can't just kind of go, um, you know, turn the page? without that dominating his first 100 days and getting in the way of things that he really wants to achieve? Yeah, it's difficult because I think probably the last thing Biden wants is to have Trump be, you know, front and center um, in his first 100 days in office. I mean, let's, let's not forget, Biden has a pandemic to deal with. He has a vaccine rollout to deal with. He has cabinet positions that he wants to fill. Um, these are the things that usually take up Congress's time um, and the beginning of a presidency. Uh, but I think Biden is coming around to the fact that obviously people want accountability. A lot of Americans want to see uh, some consequence for what Trump has done. Um, and I think the reports that I've seen, he is coming around to the fact that, you know, maybe Congress will have to split its time within the first few months um, of his administration, half of that time working on his agenda and half of that time working on impeachment. And finally, Biden is this very sort of bipartisan unifying guy from another generation. I mean, he, he's not just sort of, it's not just his age, but it's almost like his philosophy of mm. politics seems quite kind of sweetly archaic now, the idea that you can just sort of bring people together. How can a two-party democracy operate when only one party, at, at the moment anyway, believes in democratic norms up to and including free and fair elections? And, and the other one is just... It just seems to be increasingly radicalized and uh, yeah, will sort of stop at nothing. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that it can't, right? It fucking can't. So you need, I mean, the most important thing that can happen in the US right now, and to a lesser extent in the UK, is the right policing its own moral norms. I mean, that is the thing that we need to happen for the system to operate. It's got nothing to do with whether you're on right or left. It need, you need that for the system to operate. And the Republicans didn't get here overnight. You know, you can see elements really all the way back with sort of Newt Gingrich versus Clinton. You definitely see it by the time the Tea Party starts operating. And you most certainly can fucking see it when people were coming out with the Bertha stuff when Obama was in power. And it, at the heart of it is this idea of, you know, the ends justifies the means. Just so we can do whatever we fucking want. You know, there is absolutely no limitation. There is no part of our society that we will not shatter and break in order to further our tribal agenda. And that's, of course, you know, when you see echoes of it, you know, when you look at pro- the prorogation of parliament, when you look at, you know, the prime minister basically lying to the queen in order to unlawfully suspend parliament, that's what you're seeing. You know, it's a complete breakdown in moral norms of the way in which we do politics. Now, certainly in the US and also in the UK, the problem is predominantly on the right. And until that idea of the ends justifies the means starts to be turned back on, until unless Republicans are asking themselves searching moral fucking questions about what has happened and how they prevent it happening again, then, you know, you cannot put forward a vision of how society operates when only one of those parties is sticking to those rules. There really is, it's, it's hard to think of anything more important that can happen now than that journey on the right. Our guest today is Philip Stevens of the FT, who is about to publish a book called Britain Alone, a comprehensive account of British foreign policy from Suez to Brexit. So, Philip, we've—I think we may have even asked—made this comparison on one of the very first episodes back in 2017. Um, which is the biggest foreign, yeah, you know, the Brexit, the biggest foreign policy blunder since Suez? As you top and tail your book with Suez and Brexit, uh, you're perfectly placed to answer which which of those is the biggest foreign policy blunder, or, or, or is is that a fair sort of comparison? As an individual blunder, I mean, in a way, sending your Sending your troops off to war in a secret conspiracy with Israel and France without telling the American president, uh, who is your closest ally, in a, in a, in a, for a sort of single event, Suez takes some beat, without telling most of your cabinet as well, by the way, and then denying in the House of Commons that there was any deal at all with the French and the Israelis, when there was actually a signed document with the French and the Israelis setting out the terms of the uh, the attack on Egypt. I think as a sort of single act, uh, that's pretty much hard to beat. But in a way, it was over. You know, it happened, it was over. Eden went, we got over it, as it were. And you could say, you know, it was the last trumpet of empire, it was a reckoning that, you know, that we needed to have, that we needed to understand that we were no longer a great power. Brexit, you know, has a much, much longer fuse, you know, however many. I mean, I've been working at the FT for so long now as a political journalist that I often say I was born there. But, I mean, I've seen I was there, you know, I've charted Thatcher's fall, um, over Europe and uh, Major's agonies. And so, you know, Brexit has been a fuse that's been burning for a long time. But as an act of 
as I said earlier, of self-harm, it really is pretty difficult to beat Brexit. I can't think of a moment when another nation has, or this nation has said, we are going to do this to ourselves willingly, cheerfully, happily, when it's sort of so obvious that we are going to be poorer and less secure as a consequence. It seems that another sort of idea that, that, that came out of the book for me was that at the moment, since Brexit, it seems that, oh, since the referendum, it seems that nostalgia for the war is kind of worse than ever. But then in the book, I noticed you something I'd forgotten, uh, how significant Thatcher's Germanophobia was at the end of the Cold War, you know, and her opposition to the reunification of Germany. Was there ever a period, you know, that you were studying or even reporting on at the time, when, when we actually had a healthy relationship with the legacy of war and empire and a sort of stronger sense of the future than, than, than the past? I don't think so. I think, I mean, I hadn't realised just how deeply, even though I covered her, and I write about a particular meeting she had um, with Gorbachev in September of 89, when she basically said to Gorbachev, look, I prefer to support you and the Warsaw Pact and see Germany reunited, which I, I was actually on that trip to Moscow, you know, traveling in the back of a rickety VC-10, and I had no idea. And I don't think most of the other people on the trip had any idea whatsoever, most of her officials, of what she'd actually said. So I didn't really understand quite the depth of her Germanophobia. I think Blair, intuitively, at the beginning at least, was sort of, you know, of that generation who thought, you know, what's, I think his initial thought was, and it's, it's mine, I think, was, you know, what's the problem? The French are still French, they're part of Europe, the Germans are still Germans, and they're part of Europe. Why can't we, like them, hold these different identities together? You know, so I regard myself as British and Irish and European, and I, so I think Blair it, instinctively felt that we could be more we could be more european but this argument about whether we're european has rumbled on right from the beginning i mean roy jenkins sort of scandalized lots of people in the labor party in the late 1960s when we pulled back from east of suez and said he said well look this confirms that we're a european nation and lots of people on the left in the Labour Party were absolutely scandalised by that. You know, no, we're not. We're a Commonwealth, you know, we're a Commonwealth nation. We're a global nation. We are an island and we are, you know, we do have a different, we have a different sort of legal system, a different frame, cultural frame. So, you know, we don't have to be the same. And you know, within the within the EU, we were always pretty much semi-detached. But I mean, the, the galling thing for for pro-Europeans like me was that you know you could say we had the best of all worlds we had the bits that we wanted and left aside the bits that we didn't do you think there was a I mean was there sort of like a missed opportunity in the sort of 90s I mean I'm thinking obviously a sort of new labor period most of all to battle down Euroscepticism or was this is it always sort of almost inevitable that we're going to end up where we were right now where we are right now I think the opportunity, I think, you know, Major was sort of, you know, battled fairly valiantly, I think, against it, but, you know, faced not just the Eurosceptics and a rising number and with Thatcher goading them on in the background and the whole sort of Thatcher Eurosceptic 
Germany thing all sort of coalesced into one thing. I think the really missed opportunity was with Blair, where, you know, I think Blair, as I said, was relaxed about Europe, was genuine about it. You know, maybe the counterfactual that said, had we not had the Iraq war, had he not felt, look, he had to throw his lot in with uh, George W. Bush, had he pushed ahead with what he'd started with the French, with the St. Malo defense agreement. The problem with Blair in Europe was that he, uh, you know, I used to go and see him a lot, as many, many correspondents or columnists did at the time. And if you were a pro-European like me, you'd go and see Blair and he'd, tell you how you know how pro-european he was and how he was gonna you know persuade gordon to go into the euro and someone like me would then leave the door and, the, and the, then trevor kavanagh from the sun would turn up <laughs> and he explained to trevor kavanagh how he'd never give up sterling <laughs> there was belief on blair's side but no real depth of conviction the thing that blair really b- believed was that he had to stay on side with the americans he once told me it was his duty to stay on side with the American president. And he really believed that. He didn't really believe it about Europe, although he thought it sensible and, you know, um, natural to stay on side with the Europeans. So he's not going to get the mark for most sort of ardent Europhile PM. And so if it's not him, I guess, is it Ted Heath? Is that the most... Yeah, Ted, the pinnacle? Ted, Ted Heath is the... Is if you like, uh, you know, I think if you look at the special relationship, you know, we sort of we invest in the or our leaders invest in the special relationship, all sorts of emotional baggage, kith and kin, culture, language, history, and whatever. The Americans treat it as a sort of instrumentalist, you know, alliance. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. An official once said to me, you know, the trouble is we've got lots of special relationships. He <laughs> thought Europe really counted, mattered. And whereas I think every other prime minister, as soon as you get a new president, every prime minister since the war has rushed to be first to get to the White House. When Heath came, when Heath came in, when Nixon came in, Heath didn't go and visit him. Heath mm. actually waited for Nixon to come to England and visit him at Chequers rather than go to the White House first. And they installed. They first installed the hotline to the White House, um, and this was Kissinger's doing during Heath's premiership. And Heath never bothered to use it. (laughs) (laughs) I I really liked Ted Heath when I was reading this book. I I think when I was growing up, I thought of him as a rather he's on my local MP actually, and and I I thought him as sort of of sad, defeated figure. Um, But he but he does come over rather well, at least on the issue of Europe. Yeah, I'm not calling Nixon. <laughs> um, Philip, you quote a 1960 government report which said that not joining the EEC would seriously weaken our own standing in the Commonwealth and in the Atlantic Alliance. Yeah. And what, whatever happens, we must not find ourselves in the position of having to make a final choice between the two sides of the Atlantic. The, so the Americans actually supported closer European collaboration. So why then did so many PMs think that strong ties with Europe and strong ties with the US were incompatible? Well, up up until then, I mean, Macmillan, that report was done for Macmillan, and Macmillan accepted it and lodged our first application as a result of that report, the future policy study. The thing is that if you're a prime minister, and so, and I, so I think the, the theory 
of it was always was then accepted that you that you actually had to keep on side with both and that, that there was this once we joined there was this balancing act the problem if you're a prime minister is that you go to the white house you swan around with you know with the president you get a sort of state visit you go have a gala ball the white house gardens that's stardust you don't get that by going off to Brussels and sitting around eating stale sandwiches at two or three in the morning, arguing about the size of the regional fund or whether we should drain the wine lake or whatever. So you, there, is a, there is an attraction, you know, if, you're a, if you're a leader, to lean always towards Washington. And the other thing, of course, is the security relationship and intelligence relationship with the US, which are immensely important. I mean, they defend us, basically. I mean, we are a their floating aircraft carrier. It is clear, as I write in the book, that Polaris is about the least independent, independent deterrent there's ever been. <laughs> but we do rely on the Americans for our security. So that's a very, very strong pull. So... But as I say, I mean, Blair, before, you know, the Iraq debacle was handling it quite well. You know, he he got on with Chirac. He did some did a good deal with Chirac about, you, you know, the beginnings of a European, not army, but force, some deals on sharing technology, defense technology. He got on well with Schroeder and then with Merkel. So. Again, without Iraq, you might we might just have got there. But he, you know, again the Stardust thing, you know, the you know the Camp David, the you know my pal George uh, mm. stuff. They like the stage. The sort of strand of psychoanalysis and sort of national psychoanalysis in the book that kind of reminded me uh, at times of I suppose Fintan O'Toole's theory of of sort of English and nationalism. Is it? Is it England's, I suppose, even more than the UK's curse to, to sort of combine su- sense of superiority and sort of neurotic insecurity? That it's a, it's, a great, <laughs> it's a great nation, but it's sort of constantly being pushed around, you know, and that, and that really is where Brexit comes from. Yeah, that's that it does. They, you know, I think I don't know if I, I think I say, you know, that the two sort of ruling emotions are sort of superiority and insecurity. And this is English, I think very much English. I mean, I, I was born in London and brought up in London. But I don't regard myself as English. I think it's regard myself as British. But it's a very English, I don't know, a tray, I think, that you, on the one hand, regard yourself as innately superior. And on the other, you see conspiracies and plots against you wherever you look. We came to see Europe as a great sort of continental plot against our nationhood, or sections of us did. But in the end, I mean, the best quote of all came from this chap called Henry Tizard, who was some Churchill scientific advisor in the war. And he, I think, captured it, and he was talking in 1949 about our pretensions to remain a, a great power. And he said, we're not a great power, and we never will be again. We're a great nation. But if we continue to behave like a great power, we shall soon cease to be a great nation. And you could just, you know, you could apply that 
Carter, Go, Johnson, all the rest of them. It's, you know, it was true in 1949. So it's also true in <laughs> 2020. And finally, with the union under so much strain, is the inevitable sequel to your book uh, called England Alone? I think England, Britain, gains hugely from the union. But if you're Scottish, you're looking to an England that for quite a long time uh, may be ruled by English conservatives. You're looking to a type of English conservative who doesn't really care about Scotland's voice in affairs and who has cut you off from Europe. I find it quite hard, whatever the economic case against independence, I find it quite hard to believe that within, you know, I'm not talking about next year, the year after, but that within a decade, unless we've changed. And, you know, earlier we were, you know, we're talking about whether we could ever ever go back i don't think we're going to go back but we could could in a few years be talking about renegotiating a new relationship with the rest of europe but it's very hard i think to see scotland if we stay distant from europe it's very hard to see scotland remain part of the union and now it's time for but your emails this week's question comes from a listener who asked for anonymity He says, or she says, uh, like millions, I'm currently working in an environment I don't personally feel should be open during this new lockdown. My workplace was closed during the first lockdown, but my employer has abided by the letter of the lockdown legislation rather than the spirit to decide if we can't work effectively from home, which is nonsense. I work in an office using a laptop. I'm non-unionized and in a probation period of my contracts and dependent on my employer's goodwill and humanity to avoid putting my own health and that of others at risk. With COVID numbers still skyrocketing, how do you think Johnson will approach lockdown avoidance by employers? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm, first of all, I'm just really sorry. I'm really sorry, whoever you are. And I had, I remember, like the opening days of the first lockdown. Um, the employer of someone I know closely was doing the same sort of thing of just taking way too long, making them go in. It was driving me mad that this was being done when it was clearly not necessary, when it was clearly making things worse and putting them in danger. I just know it's one of those things like if you're in it, it is an incredibly hurtful and just and at best annoying thing for an employer to be doing. The reason that he doesn't go for them and that he won't go for them is because in every in every sort of trace element of how Boris Johnson and his ministers talk about these issues, you can see that they have never had a job where they're powerless. You can see that they are basically, I don't want to sound like a trot, but like they are management class. They're fucking management class. And in, in every element of how they talk, they're management class. So it's always just like, oh, of course, employers should be very reasonable about this. And I can't see why they wouldn't be. So anyone that's had, you know, a, a job that is insecure, which is low paid, where you're struggling to get back, you know that fucking employers all the time are unbelievably unreasonable. And unbelievably demanding of of what um, of what the people that are getting salaries from them have to do. So on that basis, no. I mean, I would expect absolutely fuck all from him in this area, and no support whatsoever. Yeah, I'm very sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. That's terrible, and also just frustrating because it sounds entirely self defeating in the sense that you know I, I also know people who are kind of still being uh, forced to go back to work or have been pressured to go back to work by their employers, and it's it's incredibly self defeating because if the employees start getting sick, there is no business. So um, that's yeah. yeah, I'm just really sorry to hear that, and I'm, I'm 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 sorry to also hear that there's likely nothing, at least at government, that that would get 
that that would change. Um, Philip, I suppose it's also related to that there are certain issues with, you know, the government is not paid certain people to, you know, not enable them financially to, to sort of stay at home. And there's still a hell of a lot of people going to work. There's still a lot of traffic, which is obviously contributing to the COVID numbers. Do you think this is a, a sort of failure of imagination or that it's just too expensive? Or is there something ideological at play? Well, what it sort of explains the, the sort of failure to address that? I think at the beginning, or at the begin, when I said the beginning, I mean once Johnson and the government had got over its initial prevarications and hesitations and decided in March there was going to be a proper lockdown, it was going to go on for a long time, and there was going to be a proper economic package to accompany it. it that there was a sort of for a time, brief time, there was a clarity of thought and of planning and preparation that pulled these things together. Since then, we've had this sort of ad hocery with, you know, the government trying to pull us out of the measures all the time and being forced back in and bits and pieces added here and there to the economic package. And that sense of an overall plan and a willingness on the part of Whitehall and the government to see the picture you know, right across the board has just gone. And I do think they are, as well as said, I think they're completely out of touch. There is, as someone once said to me of a, a Conservative cabinet minister, um, they just don't know what it's like to run out of money on a Thursday. Mm. Mm. And I think there's an absolute truth in that. They don't know. It's, it's that thing. It's like that, that pulp song, you know, Common People, where it's like you can act whatever, but... You know, you just don't know what it's like to not being able to call your dad. And that's really where they are. With like, You can see that complacency. Just They just don't have any idea of what it is to be powerless. And what, I mean, what it really, not just in terms of money, but in terms of the kind of jobs you have to do, the way you have to do it. I'm not, obviously, I'm not saying the person writing in is powerless and I don't know what the economic situation is, but just with every bit that you get from every member of cabinet, you get that complete disconnect from the reality of life that so many people have gone through in this country. Fuck, I've started to piss myself off. There's certainly, well, there, there's, a, there's a, when in, in the bit in Britain alone, Philip, where you're, you're writing about um, Atlee's government. And obviously you're largely talking about relationships with Europe and America. But of course, I was reminded of how many of the big figures in that, in that cabinet had come from, from occupations where initially that they, they, they were poorly paid, they were powerless. And, and how much is lost, I think, when you don't have people from working class backgrounds in the higher echelons of politics. Yeah. I mean, and Ernest Bevin, one of the best foreign secretaries we've had, you know, trade union, you know, trade, you know, coming up through the trade unions, <laughs> absolutely sort of, you know, when the, the, the Mandarins, when Bevin turned up at the foreign office, the Mandarins were, you know, initially absolutely horrified. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this sort of, you know, drunken, ill-mannered. <laughs> um, but, no, great... Great, great people with great experience and great depth of knowledge. And, yeah, we don't have that. Of course, you don't have much of that in the Labour Party now. You know, the Labour Party is a sort of professionalised uh, party to a large degree. Well, that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Philip Stevens, whose book Britain Alone, The Path from Suez to Brexit, is published by Faber on 28th of January. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to Yasmin Sahan. Thanks for having me. 
and Ian Dunt. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional roll call of our latest Patreon backers. Search Patreon, oh god, what now? Sign up, and you too could have your name mispronounced by Ian Dunt. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, what they don't know is how many takes it get. It takes for me to actually mispronounce it as badly as I do. The, the previous takes that no one ever hears are me just really fucking up the names very badly indeed. Hello, and thank you from me to uh, John Boot, Matt Kingston, Philip Brown, and Chris Wynn. Special thanks from me to Tom Callahan, Ferdinand Lovett, Joe Howard, and Colin Shackelford. And thanks for me to Marcus Weston, Danny O'Thompson, Fiona Vare, and Samuel Green. We'll see you all next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky, William Dunt, and Yasmin Saran. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, what now extra bit, a special additional section that's exclusive to our Patreon backers. This week, Trump has been permanently banned from Twitter and suspended from Facebook, whose COO, Sheryl Sandberg, says the ban may become permanent. Trump has been off, thrown off platforms ranging from Instagram and Spotify to Pinterest and TikTok, so he can't even ferment a coup in the form of playlists, lip syncs and mood boards. <laughs> Facebook is now removing conspiracy content linked to the Stop the Steal hashtag, while Twitter has banished tens of thousands of QAnon believers, causing many prominent figures on the right to lose followers and complain about it without realising that those followers were QAnon believers. Parler, the social network popular with the far right, has been banished from Apple and Google app stores and from Amazon web services, so it is currently offline. Ian, obviously the likes of Fox News and Glenn Greenwald are up in arms over this, um, but other uh, more reasonable figures, including Matt Hancock and Angela Merkel, have also said the bans set a questionable precedent. You've written something about it for politics.co.uk. Um, so have you. I saw as soon as I published mine, I was like, a fucking Dorian's written something on this. This is bullshit. I did also write, yes, I also wrote a blog, but mine included more side swipes at, uh, at people who annoy me. <laughs> it was, it, like, it was good, but it was pettier, I have to say. Um, is there, is, so w- what is it about this, uh, about these, these bands that, that worries you, um, in maybe, maybe sort of going forward? Yeah, I mean, because it's not the decision itself. I mean, the decision to me seems sound. And, it's, and that's mostly because, you know, and I say that, well, it's heavy heart to, I mean, you know, now I'm not going to pretend that I'm sat there going, oh, fuck, you know. Donald Trump doesn't get to shout fucking racist, hateful shit and try to overthrow democracy. I I don't have a heavy heart about that. But any time you do stop, you do censor someone, you need to be really fucking careful, you know, that what you're doing is the right thing. And to me, most of those decisions are about context, right? It's not the principle. It's not really, we say incitement to violence or hate or, you know, disrupting democracy. But in the abstract, if, if nothing is happening around you that would suggest an immediate threat to someone's life or of an assault or, or something to interfere in an electoral process, I don't think you can really justify that kind of curtailment of freedom of speech. In context, though, you can. Like, I don't know, I don't want to be like a full twat, liberal twat about this, but like the John Stuart Mill example on the harm principle and this stuff was a riot, a bread riot 
outside of a grain dealer's house. It was specific that it had to be within that context, not just someone saying shit about grain dealers, you know, at 9am in the morning and everything's fine. I'm always talking this- about grain dealers. <laughs> I know, I know. It's always in the morning. The thing is, in the afternoon, I'm all right with grain dealers. Um, but And this is the context that we're in, right? I mean, in the context that we're in, given what happened last Wednesday, given the inauguration coming up, there is a cl- it's not fucking abstract at all. There is a clear and present danger and disrupting the organizing capability of people who are trying to interfere with democracy, who, um, as we were saying earlier, you know, would have in all likelihood done unspeakable things if they'd been able to find the targets last Wednesday that they were looking for, is not a problem. That is a legitimate scenario in which close down free speech. What troubles me is... That was a sample of the extended section of this week's Oh God, What Now, especially for Patreon backers. Um, it's, it's a very lively, substantial one. Um, so I hope that we've tempted you. So if you want to hear that full conversation, why not sign up? Search Patreon, Oh God, What Now? Join our backers and you will get the exclusive longer edition of the podcast every week and you'll get it a day early and without adverts too. And there's also amazing merchandise offers to be had. Take care. We'll see you next week.